Welcome to the sixth episode of the Practical Operations Podcasts. We are your hosts, Brenda Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we'll be discussing tools and technologies of note from last year, as well as our hopes for the coming year. We're going to try to stay on the, the positive side and not the pie in the sky side of our hopes for the coming year. I don't want this to get into a... Well, the idea is for us to be completely and totally wrong. So when we revisit this next year, we can laugh at ourselves, right? Yeah, but I, don't, I also don't, I don't want us to get into the ridiculousness of, you know, Apple will start talking about things publicly or, you know, other things that just can't happen. Well, 2016 is the year of the Linux desktop, so. <laughs> <laughs> we have some follow-up on the last episode, episode five, which was unfortunately a couple of weeks ago due to holiday scheduling. We now have the show in iTunes. We're registered in the podcast feed there. There's a link in the show notes to the direct link in iTunes. If you like the show, please rate it and leave us feedback there. It's the best way for new listeners to find our show and to help discover the operation stuff. And please, if you have other comments or questions, feel free to email us feedback at operations.fm or go to the website operations.fm and find the episode in question and join the discuss threads there. Feedback helps us improve the show. So... We welcome your thoughts. Yeah, and I, and I just had one thing. Uh, we were talking about databases last time, and I had mentioned about some proxy applications for Postgres, uh, including um, PG Bouncer and PG Pool. And I just wanted to make sure I was correct in saying that PG Pool can do uh, parallel queries as well as sharding, but PG Bouncer cannot. PG Bouncer is strictly for connection pooling. Um, it doesn't do anything with shards. Uh, and then there's another one f- that is more related to sharding, which is PL proxy. Um, so I just want to make sure I was setting the record straight there. The other note of link is a blog post entitled Do Not Pass This Way Again, written quite a while ago. And it goes into fairly excruciating depth of all the problems that MySQL has with especially replication. But it's it's general failure to comply to acid semantics. It's an older post at this point. But it's worth a read, and it's it's illuminating from the perspective of what MySQL has gotten wrong, even when people were using it at wide scale and assuming it was the best database solution that we could use. So I think we should go around the virtual table, as it were, and talk about our favorite things in operations and technology in general over the last year. I will go first, just because I've been mentioning this a number of times, and I have this on the tip of my tongue already. But the Apache Project Kafka has really stood out to me in the last year as being an amazing piece of software, very well engineered. It replaces Redis for logstash ingestion. It serves its purpose extraordinarily well. The documentation is clear. It's fast. It's responsive. And the most recent release, the 0.9 release, adds SASL authentication in Kerberos. So if you are trying to do authn and authz, it's now possible. It's a fabulous piece of software. Oh, I guess it means it's my turn. Um, I'm continuing to look forward to improvements in Docker. I think that's still a a very strong indication of where we might be in the future as far as what things might look like. Um, I'm digging more and more into uh, big data and data analytics tools. I expect that to continue, and I expect 2016 to to show a lot of growth in that area as well. Um, As far as, as the... Us, the the wetware of operations, um, I really encourage folks to to take a look at at higher math. Um, 
I really enjoyed doing math in in high school and college. I took a lot of it. Um, really fun classes for me. And I got into the field and I end up using so little of it, you know, just sort of basic algebra at the most. But now as we uh, move into this era of big data, uh, higher math, a calculus, and a basic understanding of that uh, really started to come uh, as be required as, as common knowledge. All right, Jared, your turn. Awesome. So for, for me, I, I, I think uh, monitoring took a, took a big step forward, or maybe not necessarily strictly just 2015, but in the last couple of years, uh, tools like Graphite and Prometheus, I'll even mention my favorite one, Raymond. Uh, I, I really think you know event-based monitoring, uh, collecting more metrics at a much lower resolution than just, say, every five minutes that's trending to be the the trend now. A lot more people are, you know, reaching to Graphite or to Prometheus or some other tool than just to Nagios. And that's not to bash Nagios. Nagios is great, but it's different. We're moving more towards event events and event processing versus just active. Is this up? Is this down? Is this okay? Is this not okay? Um, I also feel that databases uh and maybe it's just my involvement but i, I really do feel especially in, and again this is more i guess over a culmination of the last few years i really feel that postgres is starting to really become a very popular database replacement for mysql and i, I think that was partly because of what happened with mysql and oracle and everything and, and also uh postgres just got better in some regards it was easier to install easier to configure easier to maintain uh, compared to years past, especially with, with Postgres 8. Um, and I also feel that uh, just, I, and I know we, we had an episode about this in the whole word, but I think DevOps uh, in terms of automation is starting to get uh, very trendy now. Uh, I know that a lot of um, companies, even some older ones, are are looking towards more, you know, more automated ways of doing things. Um, and I think Ansible actually has a big, big play in that. I mean, wow. Red Hat bought Ansible. I mean, <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's pretty big right there. Yeah. I look so forward I, to seeing what that turns into. Yeah. It, it'll be really interesting to see if they open source, uh, what was it? Tower, high tower. <laughs> but, um, so anyway, those, those are really my three things that I think really have, have really started to shift this year and continue next year. I mean, with Postgres uh, 9.5 coming coming out soon, just some of those features that are coming out are really awesome. Uh, again, with with uh, some new releases of Ansible and Puppet and even Chef, although I, I haven't followed Chef very closely lately. Um, yeah, I think there's going to be some interesting things. And then kind of jump, jump off of your, your back a little bit, Jack. Uh, I'm really, really interested in Docker. Uh, I think, I, I don't know if Docker itself will be, I, I don't know. I'm I'm still on the fence with Docker sometimes, uh, but I really I, packaging needs to get solved, and uh, Docker offers a very elegant way of handling that versus just dealing with RPMs and especially getting to the whole. Do, do we use system packages? Do we use our packages, our libraries? You know, yada yada yada. And I think Docker solves that and make and solves it in a way that makes developers and operations happy. And I think hopefully we will see that become even more clear in 2016 and, and maybe uh, 
the partnership with the Linux Foundation and all the other guys involved in that maybe might reveal something uh, even better. For me, the part of Docker that I'm really looking forward to them fleshing out in the coming year as we shift into that that side of this is having a a better and more standard volume or data-only volume pattern. So you can have a Nomad cluster or a Mesos cluster if you want to bring up an Elasticsearch cluster inside of Mesos. So Mesos will automatically increase the cluster, kind of like AWS does with its automatic scaling pieces. Well, persistent data storage is a critical por- portion of that. And right now, that's not a, that's not a solved problem. It's, you can kind of do it, but it's not clean. And I'm looking forward to that that problem getting kind of sorted and solved. It, it's a hard one. But... That's a hard one. The the closest thing I know of is is Amazon's EBS volumes. I man, what I wouldn't give for a better understanding of how those work. I I really think in the short term, at least from the Ma- from the Mesos sides of things, I know that like uh, the company Mesosphere who 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 develops Marathon. It seems like HDFS is is something they're kind of looking towards to help offer a solution there. But I, I don't know if that's, again, anything like official, like especially. A lot of tools are looking at HDFS as a shared storage solution there. Yeah, so I, I really think that HDFS might jump up and, and fill that gap. And if it does, that's really great. I, just, I want something to fill that gap and it to be something that you can you can use on multiple environments. And so it's a shared knowledge and people kind of say, okay, this is the standard for Docker volume containers going forward. This is how we're going to do it in a distributed environment. This is how we're going to conceptually handle it. Even if the specifics are different or other pieces of it, I want, I want there to be consensus about how that, how the right way to do this is piggybacking off of another piece that you mentioned a minute ago. I'm really excited about puppet and the newest version of puppet now uses the old future parser as default. And that's going to bring, puppet parsing forward significantly and move us more rapidly into a better place with that because the the DSL they use in puppet right now is limited and kind of irritating in many ways many i well well it is limiting i i just i i don't want it to get to the point to where you can just write, run any ruby code i i really do feel that's a a benefit to puppet versus a and, and a negative to chef because then you get where each each slash developer slash ops guy uh, can do do it in their own way, and it can it can almost become like a Perl script. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a big thing I have against Chef. Chef gives you those building blocks to do a declarative work, and then they call their DSL a declarative DSL and declarative configuration management. But it's really not. It's very imperative, and I've never seen a Chef setup where. It it wasn't long before it dove into, but I can just do this in Ruby, right? And, and I, I, that's you, not configuration management to me. It, exactly, you just got to be careful because, especially, you don't want to leave out your your ops guys who are not very programmer friendly. They they know Bash, and that's that's their their language of choice. But when you start getting into really some, you know, Ruby or Python or any other language, uh, you start getting off on the deep end on them. So you, you don't want to to segment them away from your your configuration management. Well, in the in the operations engineering space which we live in and we we play in, the the field is starting to segment pretty badly. Those who have the ability to pick up programming languages and to become more like developers in that sense are moving towards the top of the range and and the folks who refuse to learn how languages work and how to to bridge that DevOps gap they're starting to fall towards the bottom end of the range. And 
we're, I, I have a feeling that our field is going to split in half in the next couple of years. And it's going to be interesting to watch the fallout through the industry as the, the old, older folks who are, or the more traditional folks who say, Hey, I'm a systems guy. I'm not a programmer. I don't have to write code disappear. And the old systems programmers, people who are in operations are like, yeah, I, I can do operations work and I'm a, a talented programmer and they move forward and they, they get more acceptance and they're, they're valued more strongly. It's really interesting to watch firms try to hire uh, senior operations engineers. Every folks I've, every person or group I've seen involved with that uh, really finds those positions incredibly difficult to, to fill. Developers seem easy to come by, but folks that have a broad depth of skill, both operationally and, and uh, knowledge of code, are not always easy to come by. I interviewed with Google a number of years ago, and I was not offered a job, unfortunately. But oh, ditto! Uh, it was for an SRE, <laughs> it was for an SRE position, and they flew me out to California, and we went through the whole day long process and all of that. It was fun, and one of the things they reinforced to me was in in that space at that time for that position, they had folks who were developers who had operations abilities, and they had operations folks who had development abilities, and it was a spectrum between the two, and they were trying to gauge where I was in the spectrum disorder that is DevOps, and <laughs> that's a great definition of DevOps. Yeah, and. They said, you know, some some months we're looking for developers, and some months we're looking for operations folks, and some months we're looking for somebody who's right in the middle. So it's not a not being offered a job isn't a condemnation of your ability. It's just you didn't fit the profile we're looking for at this moment. And I think that's going to be true of the entire field going forward. It's not just one set of positions at one company. It's going to be if you want to be playing ball in operations in the interesting space where you get to make good decisions, you're going to have to understand how to code and how DHCP works, and how pixie booting works, and how all of the other countless niggling stupid details of, of operations that we have learned over the years operate. You have to understand all that, and you have to understand how to version control everything all the time, and do continuous integration, and continuous deployment, and all of the other pieces that make it more responsive to developers' needs. If you haven't patched ISC DHCPD, uh, we don't want to give you a job. You're not welcome here. Oh, wait. <laughs> I would like to encourage our listeners to not read that code unless you want severe eye pain. So, Jared, I had a question for you. Do you think that that graphite is still a will still see improvement and still has places to go, or do you think graphite is sort of one of our telemetry tools of of the first generation that's sort of phasing out in favor of newer tools? Oh man, that's, man, that's, that's a hard one. You you did actually. I mean, because I'd tell you. Where we're at now at, at my company, even personally, I, I almost default just to graphite just because it is easy to get up. It's easy. Going. It's yeah, simple. It, it's it, well understood. Exactly. And and there's a lot of support. You know, almost everything supports the graphite protocol or, you know, can shove metrics into graphite or so it's it's well understood. But then I, I do think that there is some there's obviously some growing pains after you get over a certain threshold and there's some interesting um, alternatives coming up that may replace it. I just, I just don't know if it will happen next year. And then obviously there is some development going on with graphite. And if they could just, and and I know this is easy for me to say, if they could just fix their storage engine, (laughs) (laughs) that's small potatoes, just, you know, just fix that up. Um, I, the magical black hole storage technique. 
I I do think that for the next year, Graphite will continue. I mean, it, I, I almost can compare Graphite to my sequel, and then whatever is coming up will be Postgres. So I, I think for the next at least five years, Graphite will still be talked about. And for a lot of companies, it will be what they run. For somebody who's who's using a lot of metrics or who's wanting to use something a little more flexible, I, I think, you know, I, I really do have my eye on InfluxDB. I know they changed their storage engine three times now or, or whatever it is they're up to now. But at it, least. It, it, if they can just crack that nut, I really think that they will they will be the ones. Um, it's really who can come up with a sensible storage engine and that is easy to maintain, I think will will take the lead. And there's storage nobody who's really a clear front runner. All of right your now. data. Right. And and exactly. You can just start throwing data at it. And 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 like I was alluding to that I've really started to notice this year and, and I think we'll we'll continue we're no longer going to be worried about metrics every five minutes. We're working. We're worrying about metrics at, at a minute, and even second granularity, and even sub-second granularity. And we want to store that forever. And so we need an easy way and a scalable way to to contain that and store it. I just want to say that you just described my entire job currently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen anything that comes close to the ubiquity or ease of use of graphite. It's the guys who wrote Graphite originally were doing it for being very extensible and very easy to use, and they did a great job of that, and nothing else has come close. I'm very interested in what, what Prometheus has to offer as far as how to grow their ability to do sub-second metrics and higher resolutions and more metrics everywhere. Um, but sharding by by function and how to blend those shards together, I think I have a handle on how it might work. Um I just haven't done it before and just trying to figure out, does it actually work in practice? Yeah. And then you, you, then you got the bigger problem of where, how are you going to store that data long term? That is certainly the harder part of it. I've been building out some Prometheus test stuff and for everything that I've seen so far, looks very positive about being able to use Prometheus as a monitoring solution and not use it in conjunction with Nagios, but actually replace the black box monitoring entirely with just Prometheus. The trick becomes Jack's needs of long-term storage. How do you get the data out of Prometheus and into a place where you can keep it long-term? Because Prometheus, again, was explicitly designed for two or three weeks of data retention, not two or three years. Or now, I, I know that somebody had a pull request or something where they, they created a, a way to store the data long-term in Graphite. But can you query that data from within Prometheus? Not from within it? Prometheus. Okay, that's what I was they, wondering. They do not support... Um, queries from any of their long-term uh, data stores at this point. That's on the, the future roadmap. But also Prometheus stores sub-second, and Graphite's tightest granularity is second. So you can't... You will lose data if you're recording lots of sub-second metrics and then trying to get that out later in Graphite. Yay, InfluxDB? <laughs> I, I really won't. I mean, it's written in Go. I mean, it's dead simple. Yeah, it, it, I, I spent a lot of time with InfluxDB when I was doing some analysis of of where we can, where my client can get to, that would be a better place. And I was really drawn to InfluxDB. It it seemed the tools that we're already using have support for InfluxDB. It seems to be in the right place at the right time. It's written in Go, which I really like. Um, but everyone I've talked to, everyone I've I've asked about, has basically told me if you like your data, don't store it there. Maybe that'll be my 2016 wish to 
continue watching Influx DB and and help them succeed because I would I would definitely like them to succeed. Yeah, the only scaling solution that I've seen so far for metrics for effectively unlimited resolution was the one that was developed for the Omni TI guys in house. I haven't seen anybody else who has anything that's even really close to being able to pull that off. I'm curious what data what like services like Datadog use under the covers because they have the claims of effectively infinite retention for hosts as long as you pay for them, but it's the paying for them that makes you weary. Uh, it, it makes you hesitant to just store everything there. Yeah, especially when you get to places where it's it's quoted by the number of metrics you can store. Oh, uh, that's that's just blatantly orthogonal to the concept of monitor everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because then you start worrying about, oh, should I, do I really need to monitor this? I, you know, or if I add these, writes- mo- these metrics, how much more money is it going to cost? Or developer refactors a module, and so suddenly all these metrics change name. Well, now you're duplicating your your storage needs because you suddenly have you have to keep all the old data at the old name, and the new data has a new name. So you have to then keep multiple copies of all the data around, and the costs just keep on going up. So pie in the sky, I expect to solve all these problems in 2016. <laughs> I look uh. forward to our. Uh, New Year's podcast in 2016, 2017, and I can look back on that statement. One of the things that I would like to see happen this year that is, it's not going to happen, but I would enjoy is for Node.js to finally peak and people to stop thinking that it's going to solve every problem they have. I I tell you what, Elixir is really making a splash. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Elixir starts picking up some of the some of the stuff that Node would have typically done. I'm not familiar with Elixir. What is it so, again? Yes, Elixir. Uh, Elixir is, uh, and let me let me just pull it up so I make sure I'm not saying the wrong thing here. Um, basically, it is it runs on top of the Erlang J, uh, VM, and it it's it's a language that is uh, here. I'll I'll read the description from the website. Elixir is a dynamic functional language designed for building scalable and manageable applications. It runs on the Erlang JVM on the Erlang VM. And it reminds me a lot of, of Ruby. I, I think one of the core developers for Elixir is actually uh, a core committer on rails and possibly Ruby. I, I can't remember that, but I know that that he's heavily involved in the rails community, which is why I picked up on it. Cause there's a, a framework on top of Elixir, which is a, a lot like rails to Ruby, which is called Phoenix. And it is, uh, it's got my eyes. Uh, I, I really want to learn Elixir and, and Phoenix this year. Um, so I really do think that Elixir may start taking some of those things away. Cause obviously it being on Erlang, it has concurrency and it, it can do things just like node can. And, uh, the Phoenix guys, I know they're trying to do something where, um, they're trying to support, is it a hundred thousand concurrent web sockets at one time? They have a challenge that they're trying to do on a single and, host uh, on a single host. Okay. And so uh, I, I know that, and and again, that's all because of, of Elixir and, and obviously uh, Erlang. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if that if that picks up a little bit. That sounds interesting. Erlang yeah. is not one of the languages I know, but it's one of the languages I watch. Uh, I think it's, it's one of the languages where if you know Erlang and you're writing stuff in it, uh, usually your software is pretty high quality. That does it for episode six of the Practical Operations Podcast. We look forward to seeing you next week. We're your hosts. Brendan Diesendorf, Jack Neely, and I'm Jared Watkins. Thank you and good night.